All right, good evening, church, and Merry Christmas to you. Man, it's so good to see all these beautiful faces at night, not just in the morning, but getting to see you in the p.m. is just amazing to me. It really is. It's awesome. So, hey, listen, if you're new here, uh, my name is Will Franco. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we are just so glad you are checking us out this evening, uh, that you have come to visit TVC uh, during this Christmas season. One of the things that we like to say here at our church is that we are not done. And here's what we mean by that. We mean that we've been around essentially for two and a half years now, and it's been pretty cool to see all that God has done. But one of the things that you might think if you're visiting us here for the first time is you might think, well, it seems like these people have already been doing things. It seems like uh, they already have their community. They already have a family and I don't really fit in. But what we want you to know is what we believe in light of scripture is that we are not done. Uh, God's not done working in us. God's not done working through us. And so since we are not done, that means if you're joining us here, then you have every opportunity to be a part of what God is doing here. And we would love for you to, to consider that. Another thing that we say here all the time is we want people who visit Tri-Village to know that you are welcome, you are wanted, and you are needed. You are welcomed, wanted, and needed. You know, a lot of churches will tell you that you're welcome, and then they kind of keep it there. But what we want you to know is not only are you welcomed here, but you are wanted here, and you are needed here. And so if you're checking us out here this evening, we are so glad that you've taken time out of your Christmas schedule to, to be with us here this evening. Now, if you haven't been here, what you probably don't know is that we are in the third installment of a series entitled Hidden Christmas. And the reason why we've entitled this series Hidden Christmas is because we believe in that in light of the culture that we live in, it's very easy to forget the true meaning of Christmas, right? There's so many things going on during this season. There's people and there's parties and there's presents. And one of the things that happens with, with all the activity that's going on is we can easily forget the true meaning of Christmas. And so the reason why we've named this series Hidden Christmas is because our desire is to go after very well-known stories in Scripture and discover, rediscover, if you will, the true meaning behind them. And what we're going to see is that Christmas is not ultimately about gifts. It's not ultimately about people. It's not ultimately about us. It's ultimately about Jesus. And that's been our goal throughout this whole series. And so, like I said, we're in the third installment of this series. And uh, for those of you who were here yesterday, we began, uh, we didn't begin, but in the second part of the series, we were looking at the life of Joseph. And tonight what we're going to do is we're going to be taking a closer look at the life of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is, this morning, this evening, is Luke chapter, I'm just I'm used to it, um, is Luke chapter 1, 26 through 56. So Luke chapter 1, 26 through 56 is where you find the story of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, because it's 30 verses, usually what we do at this time is we get the Bible and we read the whole passage out. But because it's 30 verses, and I don't want to keep you here all night, and a lot of you know I'm capable of that, and I, I, I don't want to do that to you. It's my present to you this year. Um, what we're going to do is instead of reading it on the front end, we're going to read it as we, as we go. So Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 56. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, it's going to be here on the screen behind me. And what we're going to see this evening as we look at the life of Mary is that Mary, in this passage, she, she's hearing for the first time the Christmas story. And so what we're getting to do here as we look at the story is we're getting to see Mary's response in real time to the gospel message, to the Christmas message. And Mary, even though she's a teenage girl, her response is absolutely incredible. It's so amazing, in fact, that what I want to argue tonight is that it should be the same response that we have when we are engaging with the message of Christmas. Here are the four things that Mary does as she engages with the Christmas 
message. The first thing she does is she thinks critically. She thinks critically. The second thing she does is she questions openly. The third thing she does is she surrenders totally. And the fourth thing she does is she worships biblically. So what I want you to see here as we look at this model that Mary creates, as we look at this pattern that she that she establishes, what I want you to see is that whether this is your first Christmas, really considering the things of Jesus, or it's your 41st Christmas, this model, this pattern that Mary establishes is one that anyone can use and everyone should use if they are going to engage with the gospel message, the Christmas message, the way that they should be engaging with it. Okay? So as we go through it, I want you to be thinking, okay, how can I think critically? How can I question openly? How can I surrender totally? And as a result, how can I worship biblically? So what we're going to do is we're going to begin by looking at the first one, is, which is she thinks critically. The first thing Mary does is she thinks critically. Look what it says here in the passage, verse 26. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Okay? Now, the first thing I want you to see is I want you to see the, 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 the initial response that Mary has is not the response that a lot of us think she would have. It says in verse 29, it says that Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. So, so the first response that Mary has to the Christmas story, to the gospel message, is she responds by thinking critically. Now, you might be looking at verse uh, 29 and you might be asking, wait, wait, what do you mean? That doesn't seem like she's thinking critically. It, it almost seems on the surface like she's responding emotionally, right? Because the word troubled and the word wondered come off like they're more emotional responses. But when you look at it in the original language, both the word troubled and the word wondered have to do with her thinking, with how she's thinking. And here's how we know, because the word troubled, even though in English it sounds like an emotional response, the word troubled in the Greek, it means to be confused and or confounded. Okay? So it seems like an emotional response, but it's actually an intellectual response that she's having. That's what the word troubled means. And then the word, run, the word wondered also seems like an emotional response, right? Because when we hear the word wondered, we, we think of someone who's amazed or in awe of something. But what the word wondered actually means in Greek, it means to think reasonably. It means to think critically. It means to take account of something. It's, it's a business term. It means to make sure things are adding up. So those, that's why sometimes the NIV translation bothers me so much because you would think if all you had was the NIV that she's responding emotionally. But when you look at the word troubled and wondered in their original language, what you realize is that she's actually responding intellectually. So the first thing Mary does when she hears this news is instead of responding with her heart emotionally, she responds, she responds with her head intellectually. Now, why is this so important? The reason why this is so important is because for a lot of us, when we look at biblical characters, one of the tendencies that we have as modern Western people is to look back at people from the past and say, oh, those were simple folk. Those were primitive people. Those ancient people, they just believed anything. But what we see is that just, that's just not the case. We see that, that Mary is not simple. She's not primitive. She's not just turning her mind off and having blind faith to what's being done here. It says that she responds 
intellectually. She responds with her head before she responds with her heart. Okay? Now, you might be thinking, okay, well, I'll give you that. Because if that's what it says, then I'm going to take the Bible at its word. Let's say that she does respond intellectually, right? She, she's troubled and she's wondering. So she's confused and she's thinking, she's pondering, she's thinking deeply. I, let me just give you that, right? One of the, the responses you might have to me then is, okay, let's say she did respond intellectually. Here's the thing. As a modern Western American, I have way more obstacles between me and believing this than she did. Right? That might be one of your responses. You might say, wait, okay, okay. So yeah, she responds intellectually, but, but she doesn't have as many obstacles to overcome as, as I do because I'm modern and I'm smart and I'm a thinker, okay? Here's what I'm gonna tell you tonight. I'm not sure what obstacles are keeping you from believing the gospel message. I'm not sure what's keeping you from embracing the Christmas message. But what I can tell you is that Mary had her own set of obstacles to overcome. And I would actually argue that in many ways they were greater than the ones you have. Here, here's why. There's actually three obstacles that Mary had to overcome in order to intellectually embrace what the angel was telling her. The first thing, the first obstacle that Mary had to overcome is that she had to overcome a theological obstacle, a theological obstacle. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is that if there's only two religions in the world that would, that would there's two religions in the world that would most struggle with believing this message, that God became man. It's Muslims and it's Jews. Islam and Judaism are the two religions on planet earth that would most have a difficult time with embracing the idea of God becoming a man. Because in both of those religions, God is holy and separate and above us. And so the idea of God coming down and becoming a man would be like, wait, what? No way. There's no way. And so Mary, as a Jew who knew the Old Testament, and I'll, I'll show you that in a little bit, she was a very law-abiding, uh, word-memorizing Jew. She, she would have had a major theological obstacle to overcome because in order for her to believe that she was the mother of God, she would have to believe that God had become a man. And as a Jew, that is a very difficult obstacle to overcome, okay? So the first obstacle she had to overcome was the theological obstacle. Another obstacle that she had to overcome, it wasn't just a theological obstacle, it was a cultural obstacle. And here's what I mean. One of the things that scholars say is that from the last word in the Old Testament to the first word in the New Testament, there was about a 400-year gap. It's called the intertestamental period, right? And in many ways, it's the dark ages of Israel because God literally went silent. He went radio silent for 400 years. He didn't say a word to anybody. See? So for a Jew to think, okay, at one point God's going to show back up, if they were to, to create a perfect candidate for God to reveal himself to, a young teenage woman would not have been that. They would have thought that God was going to reveal himself to a, a religious uh, theologian, right, or a, a Roman emperor, or a Greek philosopher, but to a Jewish teenager who's a woman? See, so one of the major obstacles she had to overcome was a cultural obstacle. The fact that she was the less person that anyone would ever think God would reveal himself to after 400 years. So she had a theological obstacle. She had a cultural obstacle. And the last thing she had, and this one's more practical, but she had a geographical obstacle. And here's what I mean by a geographical obstacle. Mary, it says in the passage, was someone who lived in the town of Nazareth. Why is that important? Because according to the Old Testament, the Messiah was going to be born to a woman that lived in the town of Bethlehem, 
Okay? So young women who lived in Bethlehem knew there was a chance that they might be the, mom, the mother of the Messiah. But if you didn't geographically live in Bethlehem, you had nothing to worry about. Right? They didn't, you, you never had to think about you being the mother of uh, God's son or of the Messiah because you didn't even live in the town that he was supposed to be born in. So even geographically, there was an obstacle for her to overcome. And the way the Bible solves it is she finds out she's pregnant, and then by the time she gives birth, she's in Bethlehem, and that's where she actually has the baby so that the prophecy is fulfilled. But at the moment of her finding this out, she grew up and had lived up to that point in Nazareth. Okay? And so what I need you to see here is that there are major obstacles that Mary had to overcome in order for her to embrace and believe this message. So I'm not sure what your obstacles are this evening. I, I'm not sure what's keeping you from embracing the Christmas message. I'm not sure what's keeping you from what, what, what things you have to clear or get over in order to embrace this message. But what I need you to know is that Mary had her own obstacles to overcome. And I would argue even though I don't know you, I would argue that hers were more significant than yours. And yet she still, in spite of it, was willing to embrace what God said. Okay? Now, here's the thing, though. I think that part of the reason why people assume that to believe in Christianity, you have to turn your mind off, is because the people who are Christians have actually promoted that thinking. I think part of the reason why people think, oh, I don't want to be a Christian because it means I got to turn my mind off. I think part of the problem is us, the people who actually believe it. Because when someone comes to you with a question or with a doubt, you either condemn them like, no, no, no there's no questions here. You got to just turn your mind off. It's all blind faith here. And I think part of the reason why people think that it's blind faith is because the people who claim to believe it, that's the message they're communicating. Hey, if you're going to come to Jesus, just turn your mind off and don't think about it at all. And it's great. I promise you're going to love it. It's our fault. Listen, God is not afraid of your thinking. God is not afraid of your questions. If you are a thinker, God made you a thinker. And he's not afraid of your thinking or your questions or, your, or, your, or anything that you have. He wants you to come with him to him with your doubt and with your questions, okay? So what's interesting is with this first point, what that means is, follow with me here, it means that one of the reasons that we should, one of the reasons why Jesus is the reason is reason, is our reason. It's a lot of reasons, I apologize. <laughs> but one of the reasons why we should rejoice and one of the reasons why we should be, we should be wanting to, to worship Jesus is reason, Reason is a reason. God is not afraid of your reason. There was a theologian who died uh, a few years ago. His name was John Stott. And here's what John Stott said about thinking. He says, knowledge is indispensable to Christian life and service. Listen to this. He says, if we do not use the mind that God has given us, we condemn ourselves to spiritual superficiality and cut ourselves off from many of the riches of God's grace. See, a lot of people here this, this evening, you are cutting yourself from the riches of God's grace. You, are, you have this spiritual superficiality because you think that to be a Christian means to turn your mind off. And what God's saying and what Mary is displaying is that, no, in order to approach the gospel in a way that results in your good and God's glory, you have to think critically. Okay? 
So the first thing Mary does is she thinks critically. The second thing that Mary does in response to this gospel message is she questions openly. She questions openly. Look what it says in the next section. It says, so it says, Mary was greatly troubled, right? And then verse 30, it says, but the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord, God gave, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Then the second thing I want you to see here is that Mary, look at how she responds, verse 34. She says, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? So the second thing that Mary does in response to this gospel message is she questions openly. It's a common sense question. How am I going to have a kid if I haven't had sex? How is this going to work, God? How am I supposed to have a child if I haven't gone through the process? I am a virgin, right? But you would think that because Mary is simple and because she's primitive, you would think that her response would have been like, well, okay, thanks, got it. That's, that's what you want me to do? Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah, okay, thanks. Go. I'm going to go do it now. But no, it says that she questions openly. She goes to God and says, wait, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. This doesn't make any sense. What, what do you mean? How is this, how is this possible? She questions openly. You see, but religious people don't like questions. You don't come to me with questions. No, you remember, we turned the brain off. Don't, no questions are bad. Those are from the world. We don't ask questions around here. You just take it. You just believe it. So those are religious people. They hate questions, right? Then, then irreligious people, they love questions. Irreligious people love asking and doubting and asking and doubting. As a, as a matter of fact, I would argue that in, in, in irreligious circles, doubting is not a means to an end. And in many ways, it is the end in itself. You've made it when you doubt everything. And nothing can ever be possibly true. That's how you've made it in the world we live in. It's not a means to an end. It's the end in itself. That's what doubting is in the culture that we live in. See, but she, she comes to God and she has the audacity to ask him a question. She, she questions God through, she questions the angel, so she's questioning God, and she questions God openly. Now, I don't know how well you know the Bible story or the Christmas narratives, but there's another story right around this time um, that, that, that happens in the Bible, and it's an angel who shows up to this guy named Zechariah. And Zechariah was a Levite. He was a priest. He's in the temple, and, and an angel shows up to him and reveals to Zechariah that his wife is going to have a child, and she couldn't have any kids up to that point, and she was really, really old. So the angel shows up to Zechariah, and when Zechariah says, how can this be? the angel becomes angry with him and punishes him. And it says that Zechariah, for the entirety of his wife's pregnancy, could not speak. That was the punishment that he received for doubting the angel. But what's crazy, though, and this is what Tim Keller talks about in his book titled Hidden Christmas, he says what's crazy, though, is Mary questions the angel, the same angel, the same angel in both, you know, the both cases. Mary questions the angel, but instead of getting punished like Zechariah gets punished, it says that the angel answers her question. He, he actually appreciates that she asked the question. And so the question that Tim Keller asked that we have to ask tonight is, why does God accept her questioning but does not accept Zachariah's questioning? Right? Why, did, why is when she do it a good thing and when he does it a bad thing? 
is the angel bipolar? Like, is he good cop, bad cop? Like, like what was the angel just, they just caught him on a bad day? You know what I mean? Like, like what, what's going on with this angel and why does he respond so differently? And what Keller says that the reason why there's such a drastic difference in the response that the angel has is because there is, there's a good type of doubt and there is a bad type of doubt. Mary does the good type of doubt. Zechariah does the bad type of doubt. Okay, here's what the good type of doubt that Mary does. The type of doubt that God accepts, the type of questioning that God accepts is humble questioning, humble doubt that is willing to change its mind when the right information is presented. That's the good type of questioning, the good type of doubt that God allows. The type of doubt that God doesn't allow, which is the type of doubt and questioning that uh, Zechariah displays, is a prideful, stubborn Questioning and doubt that really doesn't want to have their mind changed. They just want to keep you away from changing their position. You see, so religious people say doubt is wrong no matter what. Questions are wrong no matter what. And what you see in Scripture is that God's view, the Bible's view of doubt, is much more nuanced than the world we live in. God says, no, listen, doubt and questioning is great as long as you're doing it with the right spirit. If you're doing it in humility and you're willing to have your mind changed if the right information is presented, God will take that type of doubt any day of the week. But if, like Zechariah, the only reason why you're questioning and the only reason why you're doubting and you're, you're almost using doubt and questions as a red herring so that you don't ever actually have to change the position that you've stubbornly decided you're going to have, God will never accept that type of doubt. That type of doubt is inappropriate. It's unbiblical. And so if you're sitting here tonight and you haven't chose to follow Jesus yet, if you're still figuring out, is this whole Christianity thing for me? Is this whole uh, following Jesus thing for me? And you have questions, we are so glad you are here. And we started Tri Village for people with questions. We, tr we started Tri Village for people with doubts. But if the type of doubt you have, if the type of question, questioning you have is the, the arrogant, prideful doubt that just says, no, I, I, I'm acting like it, I, I doubt, but I really just don't want to change. And no matter what information is presented to me, I'm not going to budge. That's not the type of doubt God embraces or accepts. And you know what I'll also say in light of this second point that she questions openly? We had a girl here at our church who about three weeks ago, she, she gave her life to Jesus. And she was, uh, she's, she's, she's African and she grew up Muslim. And then she went from Islam to essentially atheism for a long time. And then she came to know Jesus here a few weeks ago. And she was talking to me. She's like, okay, now that I have decided to follow Jesus, she's like, what do I do with my doubt? And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And she's like, like, doubt's bad, right? And I'm like, who said doubt was bad? And she's like, I always was taught that doubt was bad. I'm like, I don't know who told you that, but that's not biblical. It depends what type of doubt you have. Is it humble doubt that's willing to change your mind, or is it prideful doubt that refuses to change no matter what's presented to you? And she's like, well, I guess it's the first type. And I'm like, well, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And you know what I told her? Because she's, she's just a very, very smart, brilliant uh, young woman. What I told her was this. I said, look, I would argue that your problem is not that you doubt too much. Your problem is that you doubt too little. And she's like, well, what do you mean I doubt too little? I'm like, have you ever doubted the doubt? And she's like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, you only doubt the truth. You only go one level in. You, everyone, anyone can doubt truth. But why don't you use the same standard and the same questioning about the doubt? If you doubt the doubt, many of the times the doubt's not going to be able to stand, stand up. Right? 
So I would argue that for many of you, part of the reason why you're struggling so much in your faith or maybe part of the reason why you're struggling to embrace this faith is not because you doubt too much, but because you doubt too little. You are quick to doubt the truth, but you are not quick to doubt the doubt. So the first thing Mary does, uh, and as a result we should do in response to this gospel message, is she thinks critically. The second thing she does is she questions openly. Then the third thing she does in, result, in response to this Christmas story, Christmas message, she surrenders totally. She surrenders totally. Look what it says next um, in, this, in this passage. Verse 35, it says, The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who has said, she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Then in verse 38, we see Mary's total surrender. She says, I am the Lord's servant, which means bondservant or, or handmaid. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be fulfilled. In other words, may your word come to pass. Then the angel left her. So the third thing that Mary does in response to this gospel message, to this Christmas story, is she surrenders totally. Now, remember, though, it, it, she only surrenders totally after thinking critically and questioning openly. But once she takes those two steps, she at some point says, look, this is all the information I'm going to have. At some point, I got to actually do something about what I heard. At some point, I have to actually surrender to what God is calling me to do. Okay? Now, think about this. For those of you who were here uh, yesterday on, for our Sunday service, we were looking at the life of Joseph, and we said that in order for Joseph to embrace the gospel message, there were certain costs that he would have to incur in order to believe the gospel message and the Christmas story. We said that he, was, he had to be willing to lose his reputation, and he had to be willing to lose his control. He had to lose reputation. He had to lose control. The same two things that Joseph had to give up, Mary has to give up as well. The first thing Mary has to give up if she's really going to surrender to God's plan is she had to give up her reputation. You know why? Because from this moment on, for the rest of her life, she was going to either be known as a fornicator or an adulterer. So people were going to look at her. They were going to do the math and figure out, okay, your kid is this old, but you got married here. So either you had sex with your husband before you got married or you cheated on him with someone else. So from that moment on, she was choosing to lose her reputation. She was either going to be a fornicator or an adulterer from that moment on. So not only was she willing to lose her reputation, though, she was also willing to lose control. And here's why. Because by Mary choosing to believe what God was saying to her, by Mary choosing to uh, surrender totally to this plan that God was laying out, Part of the reason why she was giving up control is because nowhere, you could read it by yourself, but nowhere in the conversation with the angel does the angel tell her, hey, I'm going to talk to Joseph about this. Nowhere. You don't see that anywhere. So by her choosing to believe what the angel was saying, she was actually putting her life in danger because for those of you who were here yesterday, what you know is that in the book of Leviticus, it says if someone cheats in a marriage covenant or in a betrothal covenant, the person who cheats has, the person who gets cheated on has every right to put the other person to death. So, so she actually was giving up control. She was literally taking her hands off her life by saying, I believe this. 
And her life was in danger because nowhere in the passage does it say that the angel was going to talk to Joseph on her behalf. So this, this young teenage girl is giving up a lot of things, a lot of things in order to embrace the gospel message, okay? But what I need you to see here is that Mary, listen to this, Mary only had partial information and yet she gives God total submission. I'm going I'm to repeat that, okay, because I know somebody missed it. So, so she gives God, right? She, she only receives partial information, and yet she gives God total submission. See, what a lot of us do is the exact opposite. We want full and total information, and then once God gives us all the information, then maybe I'll give you some submission, but only partial submission. Mary is the opposite. Mary has partial information, gives God total and complete submission. Here's the thing, guys. If this is true, that it, it wasn't until the third step that Mary surrenders totally, then I think there are two major implications that we have to take away from this, this section, this point. The first thing is this. If you have someone in your life who you are praying for, if you have someone in your life who you are sharing the gospel with, right? You have someone in your life that you want them to come to Jesus. What a lot of people do who know Jesus, who are praying for other people who don't know Jesus, what they want that person who doesn't know Jesus to do is to go from zero, step zero to step three. They want them to go from not knowing Jesus at all to total surrender. And then you get frustrated at, at family parties and at, 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 at different times where you, maybe it's a, na a neighbor or a coworker and you get frustrated. Like, why are you taking so long to believe this? Because what we want is for them to go from no relationship at all, from zero to step three, to total surrender. Why aren't you surrendering? And what we need to see is that we have to grow much more patient in our evangelism and much more patient in how we reach other people. Because if Mary, who knew the Bible like the back of her hand, who was someone who was a faithful Jew, she had to first uh, think critically and question openly. And then and only then could she actually, actually submit totally and surrender totally. If that was her, then how much longer is it going to take the person that you're praying for? Listen, it's not fair for you to expect total surrender when they haven't taken the first two steps yet. It's just not fair. And I would argue it's not biblical. Because God is totally okay with thinking critically and question, questioning openly. And if he's okay with it, so should we. But you know what the other thing? It doesn't just change the way, the way we, we, we uh, you know, interact with others, but it also changes the way we are, you are engaging with our own life right now. Listen, some of you are sitting here and maybe there is a decision that you have to make or maybe there's a job that you have to leave or maybe there's a relationship that you have to cut off from. And you're sitting there and you're, you're, you're debating and you're, and you're worried and, you're, and you're, you're doing all this stuff. And the reason why you're waiting and the reason why you're worried is because you want God to give you total information on whatever that thing is. God, I really want to do something about this, but you haven't given me enough information yet, man. What you see here is that God might give you total information one day, but more likely than not, he won't. God might never give you total and complete information, but he will always expect full submission. And so whatever decision you have to make, whatever step you have to take right now, I need you to know that maybe the step you have to take is stop doing all your information gathering and finally submit to whatever God's calling you to do. So the first thing Mary does in response to the gospel message, this Christmas story, is she thinks 
critically. The second thing she does is she questions openly. The third thing she does is she surrenders totally. And the fourth and final thing that Mary does is she worships biblically. She worships biblically. Look how Mary responds in prayer. I'm going to jump down to verse 46. It says, And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And then verse 56 concludes with Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. But what I need you to see here is that the fourth and final thing that Mary does in response to this gospel message, in response to this Christmas story, is she worships biblically. I I wish I had the time to unpack for you just how biblical this worship is. Many scholars say that she references the Old Testament over 10 times just in this little worship prayer that she does. And what one pastor said is that essentially Mary is the first Christian singing the first Christmas carol. This is the first Christian singing the first carol is what we have here. But what I need you to see about her prayer is that what's beautiful about her prayer, it says that she's like my spirit and my soul. My spirit and my soul. Now, in English, it seems like she's talking about two separate things. But what we know in light of the original language is that spirit and soul were the same thing. She's talking about the same thing. It's repetition, right? But what's so fascinating about your spirit and your soul is that what she's saying is is she's worshiping God with more than just her intellect. She's worshiping God with more than just her emotions. She's worshiping God with more than just her will. She is worshiping God with the entirety and the core of her being. She's, she's, she's giving God her hope. She's, with her whole person, she's worshiping the whole person of God. Guys, that's so different from how we worship. If you're an intellectual, you worship God with your mind. If you're emotional, you worship God with your emotions. But it's rare that we worship God with everything we are. And her worship is not about her. That's a foreign thought. Her worship is about God. And then she says, she says, my soul glorifies the Lord. The word there, glorifies, it means to magnify something. It means to zoom in on something. It means to enlarge something. So this teenage girl, is she, she's worshiping the Lord to such a degree that it's like she has a magnifying glass and the, 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 she's pointing the magnifying glass on God. And, and it, her soul is magnifying, zooming in, enlarging God. That's what she's worshiping with every single molecule of her being. Her whole person is worshiping God's whole person. Let me ask you a question. If the word magnify means to zoom in on something, if the word magnify, the word glorify means to magnify, if the word glorify means to zoom in, to to enlarge something, what are you glorifying in tonight? What, What are you actually magnifying? tonight? What what are you focused on? 
What, what, what is the, the what, what has your, what is, has the, 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 your mind's eye? What has captured your mind's eye? What, what are you glorifying tonight? I, can, I, I, I might not even know you, but I'm going to venture to guess that it's not Jesus. Maybe it's your children, or maybe it's your spouse, or maybe it's your money, or maybe it's whatever. But, but I'll give you two examples just here of, of what we glorify instead of, instead of God. I, I personally am a very big sports fan, right? And there are times where in church where a sermon is being preached or a song is being sung, and I'm just so bored, and I'm so apathetic, and I'm just so distracted because I just, I just don't have time for all that. But, man, you get me in front of my sports team on TV, and they score a goal, or they score a touchdown, or they dunk a ball, and, man, you, oh, I'm magnifying. You see, see I'm, I'm going crazy. I'm worshiping. You see, so, so what you see is that my problem is not my ability, is not my ability to magnify, is what I'm actually magnifying. Or, or grandparents are my favorite, right? Grandparents are like, you know, I just, I've been walking with Jesus for a long time now. And I just have a lot of stuff on my mind. And sometimes I get to church and, and, and man, sometimes the older people complain the most how the song is too loud or, or this is too, sermon's too long or blah, 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 or Will's too black or whatever, you know what I mean, whatever it is. And, and then, and, and then, and, then, and then all of a sudden, so, so church is just boring to them. Oh, my gosh, this is so, I'm just tired of this whole God thing. I just, I struggle reading my Bible. But, man, you get that grandparent in front of their grandkids? Look how cute this kid is. I'm going to put it on Facebook and Snapchat and Twitter. Everyone's got to know. Because, man, magnifying their grandkids is easy. That comes naturally to you. See, what you see is the problem is not your ability to magnify. The problem is what you're magnifying. And so the question for you tonight is, what are you magnifying tonight? Is it Jesus or is it something infinitely smaller than him? The other question is, because he says that my, she says that my, she says, my soul rejoices, my spirit, sorry, my soul glorifies, my spirit rejoices. The word there to rejoice, it means to have uh, abundant joy, to be overjoyed to the point where you're physically manifesting your joy. Like it's externally showing your joy. The second question then tonight is, what are you rejoicing in? You know what's funny about Christmas? That, that, that all of us have different you know, perspectives of Christmas. And sometimes with Christmas, there, there are people who what they love the most about Christmas is the parties. They just love being in community with their family and with their friends. And those are the party people, right? They rejoice in that part. And there's some people who are present people. Like you just can't wait to get your present. Like you just love presents and you love getting stuff. And that, that's what you are. You're a present person. Right? And there are some people who are money people and they just love the bonus that comes around Christmas so they can spend money on whatever they, they want. Okay? Some people are more vacation people and they're just glad that they get to get away from work. But you know what's so funny? That those people, whoever, whatever type of person you are, every year, it's like we have amnesia. Every year we forget that those things are going to let us down. And there's nothing worse than the present person opening their presence and realizing that it let, it, let them down again. And there's nothing worse than, than the person who wanted time off to have time off and then hate their family by the end of the week. <laughs> there, there, there's nothing worse than the, the, the party person, the person who just wanted the whole family to be together. You could just see their disappointment on their face every single year as they wash the dishes thinking, why is so-and-so fighting with so-and-so? And why did they not like my food? And blah, 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 blah. And I mean, I wish so-and-so was here. I mean, every year we are let down and yet every year we do it again. We rejoice in something smaller than Jesus. The thing lets us down. We forget it, and we repeat the process 12 months later. What are you rejoicing in tonight? If it's not Jesus, it will let you down. That I can promise you. And the last thing I want, I want to say here about her worshiping biblically 
And this is something that the Lord kind of just laid on my heart as I was studying this passage. The, the, the worship that Mary is displaying, follow with me here, is not a result of her circumstances. It's a result of her contemplation. Okay, here's what I mean. Mary is worshiping God with this incredible prayer and nothing has changed yet. Her, she's not even showing yet. Okay, nothing has changed. So her worship is a result not of her circumstances, but of her contemplation. See, but a lot of us, our worship is a result of our circumstances. So if things are good, then God gets praised. But if things are not good, then you know what, God, forget you because you're not taking care of me. And what you see here is that her worship is so biblical that it is a result of her contemplation that she can worship God. Not her circumstances because her circumstances haven't changed. It's a result of her contemplation that she can worship God. Listen, if the type of worship that she is displaying is a result of contemplation, not circumstances, then what that means is all of us can worship God this Christmas and have things falling apart in our lives because our worship should never be circumstantial. I can worship God in spite of my circumstances, not because of my circumstances. I say this all the time. We must never uh, evaluate the goodness of God through the lens of our circumstances. Don't ever do that. Don't ever evaluate God's goodness through the lens of your circumstances. What you should do instead is evaluate your circumstances through the lens of God's goodness. That in spite of what I'm going through, God is still good. God, I'm going to worship you not because things are good. I'm going to worship you because you're good. That's what our worship should be like during this Christmas season. And so those are the four things that Mary does in response to the gospel message. She, she thinks critically. She questions openly. She surrenders totally. And she worships biblically. Now, the reason why I, I, I need to pause here for a second, the reason why I can't end right here is because if I were to end the sermon right here, we would all leave thinking that Christmas is about us. We would all leave thinking that Christmas is about Mary. And you know who the person who would be most against that? Mary. See, a lot of traditions, a lot of Christian traditions, they take Mary and they put her in a place that she was never supposed to be. And they make Mary, Christmas about Mary instead of Christmas about Mary's son. This passage is not ultimately about Mary, and this passage is definitely not about us. It's about the son of Mary. The son of Mary. And, and if you don't believe me, there's actually evidence all throughout the passage. It's almost like God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and even Mary in her own words, they are both going out of their way to show you that this has nothing to do with her. Because one of the things that the passage says is that, that it says that God, when the angel shows up, he says, Mary, God is with you. You know what that means, right? If God is with her, that means God is not her. Okay? Because a lot of people think, oh, Mary's right up there with Jesus and God. No, 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 she's not. She's a sinful human like the rest of us. If God is with her, then that means she, that God is not her. Okay? And the other thing is, even in Mary's own words, she, the, the way she describes it, the, the, when the angel shows up, he says, you are highly favored. And then later on, he brings up her being favored again. The word there, favor, it means grace, right? And then when Mary is praising the Lord, she says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. The people who need grace and a Savior are sinners. She wouldn't be saying that she needs grace, and she wouldn't be calling God her Savior if she was God. Okay? 
So what we see is that in light of all this, the, the, all those traditions that elevate Mary to a place where they, sh- they shouldn't, Mary goes out of her way to make sure that you don't. And she says, look, I am not a, a dispenser of grace. I am a recipient of grace. I am not full of grace. I am in need of grace. Listen, Mary is not ultimately what this story is about. Mary is not ultimately what Christmas is about. Christmas is about Mary's son. And everything that Mary does partially, Jesus shows up and does fully. You see, because by Mary, Mary was willing to submit to God's plan, right? And by submitting to God's plan, Mary could have died. But by submitting to God's plan, Jesus did die. See, by praying this prayer of submission, Mary could have lost God's presence. But Jesus, by praying his prayer of submission on the cross, he did lose God's presence. Mary was willing to sacrifice for her son. She was willing to sacrifice. Jesus showed up and did sacrifice for his mother. Listen, let let me speak to the women here for a second. If you are a mother, I am convinced that on planet Earth, there is no love stronger than a mother's love for their child. But, but when, you, when you think of it cos- cosmically, the only love that's stronger than a mother's love for their child is a Savior's love for his people. And Mary would be the first to tell you that her primary identity is not Mary, the mother of God. It is Mary, the daughter of God. Christmas is not about Mary. And it sure heck isn't about you. It's about Jesus. And what's beautiful about Mary is that, and this will be the last thing I say, what's beautiful about Mary is that on the one hand, she has this very low view of herself, and yet on the other hand, she has this very high view of herself, all at the same time, right? Because she talks about in the passage, she says, look, I'll read it to you. She says here, she says, uh, verse 48, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. You see her low view of herself. And then in the very next line, she says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. That's her high view of herself. So how can Mary have such a low view of herself and at the very same time have such a high view of herself? The reason why Mary can do it is because she finally gets the gospel. She finally understands what her son comes to do. Listen, the reason why she has a low view of herself is because Jesus had to die. But the reason why she has a high view of herself is because Jesus was glad to die. Listen, if you are really going to let Christmas, this message, really impact you in, your, in, the, in the core of your being, no one should think lowly, more lowly of you and no one should think more highly of you than you. When someone comes, you, you should never, ever, ever again be crushed by criticism or puffed up by compliments. When someone comes and says, hey, you're a bad person, you can be like, dude, you don't even know that half of it. I'm so bad that Jesus had to die. And then when someone comes and tries to puff you up with compliments, you don't have to get affected anymore because you be like, dude, you don't get it. No matter what you say, it's so much better than that because Jesus was glad to die. I'm a nobody because he had to die. I'm a somebody because he was glad to. The gospel story, this Christmas message will bring a balance that nothing else And so during this Christmas season, here's my challenge for you. My challenge for you tonight and tomorrow and for the rest of this week is this. Whether this is the first time you've ever considered Christianity and Christmas or whether it's the 44th time you've considered it, my challenge for you is that this Christmas season, you would look at the gospel, you would look at the Christmas story, and here's what you would do, that you would think critically, that you would question openly, that you would surrender totally, and then after you do all that, that you would worship 
biblically. Amen? Let's pray.